0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. It itself is a manuscript. Oh, manuscripts that have perished. <laughs> okay. okay, you ready? Yeah.
1: three years of work in 30 seconds and depending on the strength of water a flood can do that too mice can eat up a manuscript and tear it to shreds it's interesting that Sappho's poems mostly are preserved by being used as to wrap mummies
0: torn into strips ah, that's it So, I'm Sam (laughs) Truett. I'm Sparrow. And I'm Andrew McCarron. And we're here to talk about manuscripts, which that, I feel, was a 21st century manifestation of what is a manuscript. Right. You know, conceptually, um, perhaps. So, Sparrow, do you want to say more about manuscript by way of introduction?
1: I can talk about the fragility of manuscripts, which it, that uh, quotation I just made, uh, which is a little message that I recorded on the tape recorder at my phone. Uh, I was discussing the subject of a manuscript is, at least traditionally, something written by hand on paper and that'll eventually be published as a book. And, and yet, when it exists in the form of a manuscript, it's in this terribly vulnerable position. In some cases, it's the only one in the world. If that manuscript disappears, the book is gone forever. Uh, there's a story about Abraham Lincoln. It may be an apocryphal story, but it's kind of very common in his biography. It's in my novel, Abraham, that... Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln is, let's say, 30 years old. He writes this book, a manuscript, about uh, his thoughts about theology. It's uh, In it, he denies the divinity of Christ. And he also attacks uh, the notion of predestination, which was very common then. Like, pretty much all Christians believed that God predestined all our lives, everything in our lives. And so uh, Lincoln disputed I guess, other dogmas of present-day Christianity. So he gives this manuscript to his friend, and then he comes to visit his friend. A few weeks later, his friend has read the manuscript, and his friend says to him, Abraham's a very interesting and fascinating, it's a beautiful manuscript. And then he takes the manuscript and throws it into the fire as he's talking to Abraham Lincoln. And he says, but if you publish this book, You will never have a life in politics. You know, so, uh, you know, that's why Lincoln was president, because his friend burned up the manuscript. And that was the only copy, so it just ceased to exist entirely. The way Sappho's uh, Sappho's poems would have ceased to exist if they hadn't been used to wrap mummies in Egypt, that, that the papyrus that they were written on was, was torn into strips and used for mummies. That's how we have yeah. almost all of Sappho's poems.
2: Yeah, we only have we only have one complete poem, right? And the the rest um, are fragments, right?
1: I think Sappho's. one was was quoted in some other manuscript by some uh, poet or I guess literary proto literary critic of uh, ancient Greece.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the manuscript is uh, is a very fragile state. Mm. You know, And often, as you say, there's a single copy of this thing, the manuscript type, yeah, the, that initial thing. And then um, it's kind of synonymous with poof, you know, like you have something and then you lose it and it's gone, completely mm. gone. I mean, Henry Miller said, you know, no idea is ever forgotten. Mm. But, you know, what's forgotten is is the, the words that initially captured that idea and that there's the kind of virtue to that. You know, you can re-articulate ideas, but never exactly in that original way. And then, you know, the whole history of literature is the history of lost manuscripts and sometimes found again, like uh, Billy Budd. You know, Billy Budd is a good case in point. You know, that was a manuscript of Herman Melville's late in his life. He wrote it uh, after all of his like renunciations and et cetera, et cetera. I think that it was after he wrote Bartleby the Scrivener. He Hmm. didn't write all that much. He wrote that Billy Budd and then. It wasn't found for I think it was seventy plus or minus years. Oh yeah. Yeah, and or maybe not quite as long, fifty, but you know, a considerable amount of time.
1: Yeah, I think in the twentieth century, it, maybe early twentieth yeah, century.
0: Of a perfect novella. Yeah, one one of my uh, favorites is Malcolm Lowry wrote a novel. It was after he wrote Ultramarine and um, none of these novels came easy for him. Yeah, and he left it in a train. And wow. then, poof, you know, gone.
2: I know um, it seems every few years there's some manuscript that surfaces out of the Vatican Library. Ha! Huh. In particular, I remember a story of, I'm forgetting what century, but the, um, the historian Procopius Mm. His his secret history of Justinian and Theodora. He wrote a a state-sponsored history, and then he wrote a secret history in which he trashed the royals. And that surfaced in the Vatican Library, I don't know when, but centuries later.
1: Yeah, it was written, what, around 500, something like that, 600.
2: Yeah, at some point in the 6th century of the Common Era.
1: Yeah, I read it pretty recently. I just happened to have the Penguin edition in my garage. And it was fairly short, the print was fairly big. And uh, it's amazing how similar uh, the, a, is it the Emperor Justinian, is that right?
2: Procopius um, expounds upon Theodora's checkered past as a carnival performer who Justinian um, felt attracted to and took on as his queen, his wife, in his the Empress. Yeah, it's
1: really it- similar. To uh, Trump and Melania, like weirdly yeah. similar. Even Justinian, uh, what did he waste? He had an enormous uh, treasure chest of money from the Roman Empire, which had, was still was kind of in its last days, but still was very rich. And what did he waste the money on? Building a wall along the southern border of Italy to prevent it from being attacked. A wall along the southern border? You hear what I'm saying? <laughs> and, uh, and get this. He was going to eventually be attacked and sacked by the uh, vandals and the goths from the north. This might predict that really America is eventually going to be conquered by Canada. If uh, history follows its uh, pattern. You, know.
2: <laughs>
1: you heard it here
2: first. I had a peak experience in my life and maybe I was 18 or so. I don't know if it was um, prompted by my upbringing in the Catholic Church. Oh. I journeyed to New York City. It must have been about 1995 or 1996, maybe 1996. Anyway, it was in the mid-90s, and I journeyed to New York City to the Whitney Museum in its Mm. previous location to um, see Jack Kerouac's original on-the-road scroll. I know it wasn't written by hand. It was typed, but... Just being in the presence of that really was a transformative experience. I, I wanted to touch the glass. It was it was like a religious relic or something. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and it was all unrolled, right?
2: Um, no, that was the. It was unrolled for a show um at the public library, maybe ten years yeah. later. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was at both of those shows.
1: Yeah, my friends and I, the Unbearables. I'm in this group of. Radical writers, maybe you could call us the Unbearables, and we protested that uh, that show it was a Beat show at the yes. at the Whitney. We were standing outside handing out leaflets. Um, I think I might have written the leaflet because uh, it was uh, at and sponsored the Beats, and I was discussing the uh, whatever. Irony of uh, the corporate sponsorship of this, uh, you know, troop of anti-establishment characters.
2: Maybe you handed me a leaflet as I was walking.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe it changed your life.
2: (laughs) But I've I've
1: always used to take one.
2: Yeah, it's possible, although I doubt it. Uh, I've always been drawn to manuscripts. I remember when I was at Harvard Divinity School, going Mm. to the library. Which is the Rare Books Library? Just so I can, I could get out um, Emily Dickinson poems and um, you know original manuscripts from the 19th century from authors I like. There's some Emerson stuff there, and you're able to hold the manuscripts um, under supervision, and it it was like a religious experience. I, I'm wondering, do either of you feel that way about mm-hmm. manuscripts?
0: You know, um, historically, I haven't particularly felt that way. Um, but I'm you know, rethinking that. You know, I've always felt as though and it's a, yeah, it's definitely a prejudice I'm seeking to explode. You know, that these are all um, vehicles and that the I mean, I certainly feel that way about books. you know, I don't care if it's like a super leather bound, you know gold embossed you know this and the you know the actual object i mean i have you know uh, extreme reverence for objects of art variously and you know and you know and particularly paintings and and you know contemporary art particularly but for uh literature and for uh writing things I just feel like the different incarnations are just, by, you know, are just uh, different vehicles, you know, from getting one place to another. Does it really matter if you're in a Chevy, like a, if you're in a Gremlin or mm. if you're riding in a Silver Shadow Rolls Royce? You know, you're still going to get there. It's just, uh, you know, just how you get there. It doesn't doesn't make too much diff.
1: But you um, have uh, very nice cars, Sam. You drove me somewhere in your Super uh, classy uh, convertible.
0: Yeah, but that was
1: the result of BMW. just a chance
0: operation. I was super, you know, I needed a car, <laughs> and it, and somebody was selling a car on the side of the road. It was inexpensive, and it turned out to be a you know this BMW 325i, <laughs> uh, you know, roadster with the you know convertible, and it's a nice car. No, I, I um, actually, though, with manuscripts, there is a big difference. And I'm a big believer in the manuscript. I'm a big believer in the difference between the words as a means of mimesis, of conveying ideas, of their operation in terms of causing cognitive, emotional events. Whereas the manuscript interests me tremendously because that's the actual moment of the mark. Mm -hmm. And that's the actual moment at which it happened. You know, as it moved from the invisible, the potential, the other side of the air to that point at which it actually became manifest in the world, that nativity is is a profound event. So from that uh, uh, aspect, yeah, definitely the manuscript is a um, is great. Plus the the follow on events, the textual, the excuse me, scholarly attention mm. to manuscripts and the kind of um, not grammatical but mm. uh, diagrammatic marks that are coincident with that re representation are. Mm. Works of art, you know, are profound with the lines and the, you know, mm-hmm. this connecting to that and um, the way mm-hmm. in which manuscripts are marked up for their reproduction. That also is super interesting.
2: An analogy in my mind um, would be the cave art in the South oh. of France, in northern Spain, those those marks, those, those marks, the handprints, the... Um, You know, the Hmm. painting pressed into the stone that remained there and that remained very much emitting energy.
0: Hmm. Oh, definitely. And that's part of I I did take a few notes on manuscript and, you know, that's in the word Uh, menu, I guess, is hand and script, um, you know, which is actually related, I think, to carving, if I if I remember correctly. But, you know, the idea of the hand. Uh, script, the hand print, is for me definitely an echo of Lascaux, of the plasticine mm. caves and plasticine art, and also echoes for me with the hand print. I think there are a few instances of hand prints at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Oh, wow. where a, a human figure was evaporated and their mm. shadow and the shadow of their hand mm. on the wall. Also, uh, contemporaneously to those events, it are the handprints of people who were exterminated during the oh. Second World War in the course of the final solution mm. at and particularly Auschwitz you know in the sort of perfection of the uh, of that machine where you have people that are dying who the force of their of their dying of, of and pushing their hands into the wall i don't know hmm. if that's apocryphal is that true i, I thought I that never heard that. there were handprints in down in those um, gas, gas chambers so that sense hmm. of the human impression um, I wrote this note here, pressure of the hand oh, I and see. the X of poesis. Hmm. I'm not sure what I meant by X, but I think I was using it in some notation. The hmm. X, I think the mark or the X of poesis, who's to say. Uh-huh. And then I wrote, oh my, and then I wrote to a making. Shall I read more of this note? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, all right. And then I wrote, America should dominate the manufacturing (laughs) sector as we are a nation of poets. That's an echo of Whitman, right? (laughs) That poetry is at the root of being human, much of which has been stripped away from us when we were forced to become consumers that might be the basis for a lot of the contemporary neuroses.
1: Oh, yeah. Or desperation.
0: Yeah. yeah. And Beyond neuroses. We are alienate from our nature as an advanced animal based on making structures to while away the knowledge we will die. Ha. <laughs> Thanks Sam. <laughs> uh with some uh, d- uh ma- with some of those things that we make uh made of words, you know. And then I I guess I go into like making structures. Uh. That's interesting. People may exercise their nativity. There you go. Making uh or at least uh you know, blah blah blah, locally <laughs> as possible with the uh With the something of a society Hmm. based on equilibriums of the distribution of poesis as their root of the nature we share with creation, because we actually don't need much except what is inside, maybe or, or no, except what abides and a few simple things and the space. To care for them and each other. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, <laughs> then I keep going. This is getting too much. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, like this uh, street I live on could become if the right force hit it and we were made to band and survive ourselves is oh late and curt every somewhere and make food and heat and bam enough surplus to throw a party and become a cult mm-hmm. not a cult but a cult yeah i'm interested in oh. cults right now i thought he said a cult too Yeah. Sorry. yeah me too. Okay. So maybe maybe we should well
1: make a cult <laughs> the three of us
0: well it's been spoken like of. We do form a trinity.
2: Our...
1: Oh, yeah, that's true.
2: Yeah. Sam, I really liked what I heard. I would love to um, see the manuscript. Itself. Yes. <laughs> you, uh, yeah,
0: maybe you can help me make out well, some of these words.
2: I was wondering, uh, related to what you wrote and read, Sparrow, uh, you're a member of the tribes. Oh, yeah. And that's a manuscript religion. The Torah is written by hand, right? There are people who... Who write it? I don't know what they're called. Maybe you know.
1: Um, yeah, what, I have something like Seferim or something like that. Fair, I, I have this friend, Dan Sofair. He used to own two bookstores, one in um, Woodstock, one in Phoenicia. And a Sofer, I believe, is a scribe. Because a Sefer is, like Hebrew works with these three-letter roots, that are used in various forms, recombined to make slightly different words. So sefer is a book, and a sofer is a scribe who writes books, I believe.
2: So the sofer, that, that correct word, copies out the entire Tanakh, right? Word for word, letter by letter. Yeah. That must be such a painstaking task that yeah, I imagine would take for any Torah scroll a very long period of time.
1: Yeah, I've heard the statistic, and I can't remember whether it's one year or two years to, and it has to be on a certain type of paper, which is maybe goat skin. I, you know, I every time I talk about Judaism, I hit my wall
0: of ignorance
1: <laughs> in the second sentence. I'm, it's astonishing,
0: but I thought, like you always hit it though. You always hit like this high mark. And then what you need to do is like leave the room or, you know, change this, laugh really loud and, you know, try to get out of uh, going farther.
1: Escape from the uh, third sentence.
0: Is that related to the Sephirot? The Sephirot?
1: What is that, Sephirot?
0: Uh, Sephirot, Sephirot, isn't that connected to Kabbalah? Isn't that related to. With the
1: Sephirot? The uh, are like the uh are like yeah. spheres. They're like different, what's the word, levels of, uh, they're like the uh, the chakras, levels History of consciousness. Of life, yeah, maybe. yeah. Mm. the spheroid, I don't know what that, I think it's, just, I'm really not sure if that word is related at all. I mean, because as, as Andrew was pointing out, like Judaism is a religion that is so kind of obsessed with the written word that it's possible that the word for metaphysical levels somehow comes from the word for book. I mean, it does not seem impossible at all. Fascinating. I mean, one thing I was thinking when you were asking, Andrew, about manuscripts, I was thinking, you know, when I, saw, particularly when I saw the scroll, I think both times when I was at both of those sh- exhibitions that you were at and saw the scroll of On the Road, but particularly when it was unrolled, and you could see all 60 feet of Maybe I don't know if it was completely unrolled or just sixty feet of it was unrolled, roughly sixty feet.
2: A large portion. That was a facsimile, actually. The, the original, well, the original one was only displayed um, at the Whitney, if I, if my memory serves correct. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But
1: I mean, I do. F- I, I think I noticed that I seem to have more reverence for scrolls. I mean, I'm not really, in a sense, a religious Jew at all. I don't know that I believe in the religion, in the least. But um, I do believe in scrolls, or I have a certain reverence. There's something about a scroll that, that kind of excites me. But I was going to, in my uh, notes for this, which I m- made entirely on the tape recorder, and which uh, I was going to transcribe, but then I had this long interview with this curator, Jean-Marc uh, Superville, uh, and I forget, uh, Sovak. I think that's his name. Anyway, I didn't have time to transcribe it, but I was going to talk about uh, Monday was Yom Kippur, started Sunday night, ended Monday night, and in this modern, crazy way of going to services online in Los Angeles, you know, I was kind of synagogue hopping like mad. I, I went to some website that said, you know, free Yom Kippur services, and I would just kind of arbitrarily bounce from one to the other based on whenever I got bored with one <laughs> rabbi, I had switched to a different rabbi. It was kind of perverse, but I, I noticed this morning I was.
0: yeah Kapoor slutting around.
1: Yeah. I hate to think of myself as a channel surfing Jew, but that's what I've become. And, uh, I don't know if you've experienced something similarly, Andrew, as a Catholic.
2: <laughs> I just haven't gone to any mass. I, I, uh,
1: I think you might be able to hop from mass to mass. And the, the good thing about Yom Kippur is, you know, you miss one part of the service in uh, on the east coast. Three hours later, that part is going to appear on the west coast. So anyway, this morning I actually happened to be walking through the house singing to myself this really beautiful song, this chant, which is a very characteristic chant of Yom Kippur, which goes something like, and it's sung with great fervor and almost with like weeping by, typically by the cantor, which was, it goes, (laughs) Avinu malkeinu Avinu malkeinu kadvenu kadvenu (laughs) And my Hebrew is very minimal, but actually I know all those words. Avinu, our father. Malkenu, our king. Kadvenu, write us, write about us. Lesefer, in the book, Chaim, of life. Our Father, Our King, inscribe us, how it's usually translated, in the Book of Life. And so, the, I guess the Orthodox Jews believe there's a literally, that God, the actual God of the universe, writes down the name of every person who will live in the uh, coming year, you know, because it's also the New Year. The, uh, Rosh Hashanah is the New Year, 11 days later comes, uh, 10 days later, rather comes Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then if you make it through that, the Days of Awe, it's called, mm. and and repent, and you, you know, atone, then God will accept your repentance because God is a God of forgiveness and um, write you, inscribe you in the Book of Life, and then you'll live another year. And presumably there's a Book of Death, uh, Sefer Meitim. I think Metim might mean of the dead, where God writes all the people that are going to die that year. <laughs> it's very literalistic, and it might be, in some sense, a kind of uh, a spiritual manuscript.
0: It is. It itself is a manuscript. Oh, man, 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 man. Yeah, I um, I wrote something that also. This is not as long that might relate, and it's short. I wrote manuscript dash life's immediate experiences and then a question mark manuscripts are often more interesting than the originals as the expression of the effort and the implicit immediacy of the act is present there (laughs) sorry that wasn't too what does that mean
1: Uh, more interesting than the originals
0: Uh, More interesting, you know, that, I don't think I, I'm sorry, it says that the originals as the expression of the effort and the implicit immediacy of the act is present there. In other words, the idea that writing and the making of the manuscript is a a performance, it's an enactment, Mm -hmm. it's a, I don't know if it's a ritual, that doesn't quite sound right, but it's a... But it's as real as fornicating, you know? It's as real <laughs> as conception. It's as, you know, like, you know how it, you know, you ejaculate and, and then there's a seed and the sperm and it all connects and then, bing, you know, you it's as profound as that, I believe.
1: Particularly when they had like those kind of pens that you would dip in the ink, you dip the pen, the phallic pen in the vaginal inkwell Mm. and then you ejaculate your uh, words onto the page. I mean, in a Freudian sense, you know. And back then, oh. I think writing was more uh, closer to fornicating. <laughs>
0: yeah. And it's also it's also very slow. Mm. Like right. the manuscript, reading, like if you read a book that's based on a manuscript, you can mm. read yeah pretty fast, you had a pretty good clip, and even if you speak it, That's, you know, still much faster than, like, writing Ozymandias um, Shelley, you know, and he wrote that in 18 minutes. Um, You know, he still needed to do that kind of like pow, pow, you know, get a little Mm. bit more ink and, you know, write out the next line. And, Mm. you know, it took took 18 minutes, but you can read it eh, maybe a minute. You know, my name is Ozymandias. Yeah, I, I just a re-wrote traveler it. from an antique land who said... I rewrote
1: it like a week ago uh, as being about uh, Donald Trump. I am uh. Trump, the chosen one. Look on my works, ye mighty, and dismay. Is that the term? <laughs> is that the word, phrase? Dismay. I,
0: I so, think it's despair, but dismay. Despair. <laughs> yes,
1: despair. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: It's a uh, sonnet. I never realized Ozymandia was a sonnet.
0: But I do, I do really want to circle back to this idea that we live in a state of manuscript. We live <laughs> in a, you know, Emerson very famously, he's, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson very famously, the being hmm. is not something that you have. It's something that you build, hmm. that you're building your being. And that in that sense, we're building or making this kind mm. of book or making, you know, we're making mm. something, but the process by which we make it is one of a uh, manuscripture. You know, this moment is, you know, where we're handling words, handling speech, handling these different tools. And this is mm. not a this is not the final product because we'll edit it you know we'll mess around with it and in the Hmm. same way you know the experiences that we go through many times are fragmentary are Hmm. preoccupied are Hmm. drifting sideways um (laughs) you know we're not in this state of like You know, neurotic, um, anxious, inferiority, impelling, perfection by any means.
1: It does remind me of visiting my uncle the other day. Uncle Ben, he's 95. He's living in Woodstock at the moment. And, um, you know, he's in bad health. He's on oxygen. He's just diagnosed with COPD, whatever that is exactly. And, you know, he sleeps a lot during the day but he's still very mentally aware. And uh, just talking to him, it's like you're looking at this person. I mean, his body is a kind of manuscript of his life. You know, he's kind of written, his life has written itself onto his body. And, um, you know, it's kind of, he's a sweet person, I always thought. Kind of a fun person, glamorous in a way.
2: Sarah, I love that. I love the the idea that the body becomes a manuscript for the life. And there are marks on the body and scars, visible and invisible. Mm, mm, Creases mm. in the face, right? Yeah. The, what um, is that
1: famous line, by the age of 40, everyone has the face they deserve. Yeah, I don't know who I've said that. that. I don't know if it's apocryphal.
0: I've, I've heard I it. thought Abe Lincoln might have said <laughs> <something>. <laughs> Actually, I think, yeah. like,
1: according to my vast studies of Lincolnania, uh, you know, like ninety percent of the phrases attributed to Lincoln, he didn't say. Mm. Like, I don't think he said a man's legs should be long enough to meet to reach the ground. <laughs> how long? How tall should someone be? It should be long enough. Your legs should be long enough to reach the ground. I don't think he said that.
0: The so one know, thing did, that occurs to me is Ben Franklin, uh-huh. um, and his saying into the space kind of of the manuscript this was say um what he had intended to have inscribed on his tombstone um but he didn't follow through on that but i remember first seeing it at the new york public library it had you know this kind of somewhat beautiful wooden scroll unfurled above a doorway And I think it was in the main uh, reading room, but I'm not positive. And do you want me to do you want me to read this to you? Yeah. Okay. it's um, the body of Benjamin Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author.
1: Author with a capital A, you know.
0: Oh, there are lots of capitals, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, yeah. by the so,
1: author, I think he means God, not Benjamin Franklin.
0: But is that true? I think it's ambiguous, and that would be, you know, that <laughs> would be, <laughs> be appropriate for Franklin, and even in his early incarnation, in which there's a certain ambiguity about that. I'm not sure. You mean a certain agnosticism? Yeah, that the author, after, you know, he's left, and, and, you know, it starts to kind of, um, kind of blow your mind, but, you know, that after, in this afterlife, in the um, Bardo, He's then able to read his own book and say, oh, you know what, I I think I I, I would prefer to, you know, take this passage out, you know, Mm -hmm. and pow, it's gone. And, oh, maybe I should have gone a little bit farther with this. So you add a little bit there. In other words, uh, in the place beyond time of infinite reflection, like Sparrow, your description of what heaven is you know, which is study and
1: mm.
0: discourse and philosophizing, etc. You know, that there's an opportunity to um the Sufis, you know, practiced um or you know how <laughs> to yes. practice repairing your past. You know, that through meditation and through certain practices you can fix the past. You can help mm. out, you know, your friend that mm. died of a heroin overdose. You can, you know, change things of the past to purify it. I think the Mm. Mormons have a similar...
1: Well, they pray for dead people. It's not exactly the same. Mm. I mean, they they pray for the dead so they can go to heaven, I think. You can save the the dead in there. I
0: think if you convert and become a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints... It could be because, It's retroactive that all of your ancestors are also uh, become part of the elect.
1: But I think you have to do something. I think that's why they have a mountain full of genealogical data. I don't think it just, it's automatic. I think you have to say some kind of prayer, convert the dead. And I think sometimes Orthodox Jews somehow find out that their ancestors are being converted by Mormons (laughs) and get really annoyed.
2: I guess that's the uh, the Joseph Smith, um, the tablets that he found. Maybe that's the great missing manuscript. Of.
1: Yeah, I know. I always found oh. myself thinking of
2: that too. But were the, were those tablets um, reclaimed by by God or was he just unable to relocate them after hiding them in what, Palmyra, New York? Or no, it was in Vermont, I forget. No, no, no it, was, it, was it, was it was in New York. Southern tier, yeah. I think that he discovered the plates
1: translated them, perhaps with the help of the Angel Moroni. And then I think maybe the Angel Moroni took, that's what I, in my mind, and I read this book recently, The Mormon Murders, that gives something of a history of Mormonism. So uh, I wish I remembered it better. I kind of thought the the uh, the Angel Moroni, which is such a great name for an angel. It's like moron with an eye at the end yeah uh, i thought he absconded with the with the uh plates that was my opinion
2: i know this guy i haven't seen him recently his name is greg i'm forgetting his last name right now so i don't know him very well and he's painting the book of mormon he's a mormon himself huh and he's mm. doing these huge beautiful beautiful I mean, very talented artists beautiful canvases telling the story of joseph smith and i saw a few and i they appealed to me
1: they look like 19th century history painting. The paintings.
2: Yes, they do. And he's
1: 100% believing Mormon.
2: I don't know. It's hard to tell. He's um, uh. Mormon hipster. I I, I I have never quite met someone like him before. I didn't know that 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 sort of thing existed. But he's uh you know hangs out in Brooklyn and he's a painter, but very much Mormon and from um, uh, Salt Lake City. Uh huh. Outside? No, not Salt. Lake. What Utah? From somewhere in rural Utah, outside of Salt Lake City.
1: Uh-huh. but not from one of those places where where he's not
2: from like a he doesn't have six mothers or something. One thing that I um am aware of is that um, the manuscripts are disappearing in this digital age when everything so much is typed out and um you know there's no record fewer and fewer records unless you're really on it of originals and um. You know, people do a lot of editing by digitally, and so I wonder what what will happen to the the manuscript. It's disappearing, I think. Right? That's my sense. Yeah, I
1: mean, that was my thought also. One of my first thoughts about manuscripts is the age of manuscript is over. Like even a typewritten manuscript that you hand type on a typewriter somehow feels like like a manuscript. Like it's a Man- in in the, what's the word, tradition or in the um, legacy going back to, you know, the uh, Sumerian, uh, you know, clay tablet. But uh, but putting something on a computer and then printing it out, that does not feel like a manuscript to me.
2: That's why there's this wonderful poet by the name of Sam Truitt. Huh. Who recently published um, a manuscript where his um, handwritten journal pages are featured next to um, the the typed uh, draft or iteration, right, Sam?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely, yeah, there's the whole book, Tokyo Ototo, that, you know, chronicles this trip to there that I took at the end of last year. And, um, you know, over the course of that, I, you know, kept a uh, notebook And then I transcribed that notebook. And as it happens, everything I wrote was just fantastic. So I didn't have to leave any pages out or do too much changing. And um, definitely I'm interested in showing where something comes from, you know, roots and dirt and all. I'd like to point out that you told me prior to that trip that one of your
2: motivating factors was to return to a place that you had lived as a child Mm. and... Find or reconnect with that portrait of a small Sam Truett and a prospect of flowers in mm-hmm. Tokyo, and I think the form of form of the book captures that existential project, mm-hmm. whether you intended it or not, in in a way that's um, pretty profound as a life study across time, mm-hmm. life's original and um, you know the evolution from that original into some later version of self.
1: It reminds me of one of my earliest memories is uh, I'm dictating to my sister. My sister two years younger than me. And I'm dictating some kind of writing, a story, I don't remember what, to her. And she's writing it out. And we're both illiterate. We're both too young to be able to write. And she uh, doesn't know. She's just making marks on a piece of paper, you know. And uh, and then she would fill up the page, then you know, cast it aside, move on to the next page. And I remember just having this great whatever thrill of uh, dictating to her, generating this manuscript. And in a sense, because I use a voice-activated computer now, I'm still involved in the same process, or rather, have returned to the process uh, of my early childhood. Yeah. Well,
2: Chomsky. Chum- would love that because of the internal grammar that he believes we're born with, that he Uh. would say that your sister was up to something meaningful in those marks.
0: Mm. Yeah. The, the, the one thing to, I, I, to circle back, uh, Andrew, in terms of what you, because I didn't really remember that I'd said that, but that's terrific. And I, I just wanted to point out what I actually learned, um, and, you know, reading from this. So I grew up in Wakamatsucho, and just a suburb, kind of. It's in Tokyo, but it's a uh, uh-huh. sort of slightly outlying area. And I wrote, to step through the wind, to remember vaguely and fondly Wakamatsucho. So now I'm in Wakamatsucho. And this is what I found out. I think it's a bit of a cliche, but this is what I wrote down. All you've got to do is turn around to find where you came from. <laughs>
1: I don't think it's a cliche. I, I like it better than that famous line from the four quartets about you come back home and you see it uh, for the first time as it really is.
2: To arrive where one started and know the place for the first time, or to, to arrive where you started and know the place for the first time from the end of um, Little Gidding, the final quartet. Ah, yes. It's yes. this, the big punchline
1: I- of the whole four quartets. You know, I have this valuable manuscript It occurred to me. I don't know if I can read it to you, if you guys might be interested in it. But um, I was thinking about manuscripts, and I was thinking, I st- you can see this here? I started this movement called the official one-size-fits-all, it was called the one-size-fits-all movement. Uh-huh. And I wasn't really, I'm not sure if I really had a very clear idea of what it was, but this is the official one-size-fits-all handbook, which is um, uh, mimeographed on the uh-huh. back of scrap paper, and it consists of a series of sort of questions, you know, that you're supposed to fill in the answers to, uh-huh. and uh, this was, uh, was filled in by Allen Ginsberg. So, really? Really? this is like the only copy <laughs> of this manuscript. So, uh, you know, in the world. So, can I read it to you?
0: Yeah, that's uh, super charming, and that actually is a valuable manuscript. I'm I not know. sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know it how sounds like I'm joking. That's worth,
1: but what? I, it sounds like I'm joking when I say I have a world famous, valuable manuscript, but I do. But
0: it's. It's true. I mean, that's uh, worthy of Sotheby's. I think you could get coin on that.
1: Yeah, I know. Maybe leave it to my daughter. Okay, so the first line is, my name is, and then he filled in, Allen Ginsberg. My hat size is, and then he wrote, one never measured. (laughs) He said, uh, the next question is, I joined the one size fits all movement because... And then he wrote in, empty heads are universal. And then uh, (laughs) the next line is, I will always stay in the one size fits all movement. And then he wrote, he created two little boxes, one that says yes and one that says no. And then he checked yes. And then he says, uh, then the next line is, my hopes for the one size fits all movement are... Oh, and he wrote, infinite as space itself. And then (laughs) then, uh, the next one is, each night before I go to sleep, I. And he wrote, rest in one size fits all, empty space. And then um, the next line, next page is blank. And he wrote in sunyata, and then in parentheses, Sanskrit. Ku, K-U, in parentheses. Japanese, and underneath that, void, or open space, in parentheses, English. And then the next page was blank, and he wrote mantra, colon, ah, A-H. And then the next page was blank, and he wrote date, 7193. And then the next page was blank, and he wrote in edition number one. And then the next page was blank, and he wrote in signed by author, Allen Ginsberg. And the next page was blank, and he wrote, "Author's pseudonym: Allen Ginsberg." And then the last line he says, "In case of accident, in empty space, please notify next of kin: Eugene Brooks, Plainview, Long
2: Island." That's that's uh, that's incredible, and it's 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 got some real profundity and humor. Yeah, I mean, he oh, oh. really. I, like,
1: uh, what's the word? Collaborated with me on this really juvenile idea, and <laughs> kind of you know dignity and
0: and real literary power to it, and seriousness, and yeah. also that it's. I mean, you know, it's very complete. Like he really paid attention. He answered, it's beautiful, it's vatic. And then also, just because it's Alan, one has this opportunity to kind of be with him. You know, like I felt, yeah. you know, like he was sitting next to us. I, That's beautiful. I'm touched deeply.
1: I mean, I never looked at this. And, um, yeah, he mailed this to me. I must have handed it to him somewhere. And then he... Um, you know, filled it out and had his uh, uh, assistant, I guess, send it to me. And, uh, and then I just thought, well, we're doing manuscripts, so I'm going to look for it. I mean, when I got it, I thought, well, it's very party-line Buddhist. Uh, I thought, you know, he's relying too much on his Buddhist cliches. But reading it now, it just seems, you know, of course, now he's been dead many years And I was not his best friend. I really didn't know him very well at all. I mean, that, but that's part of what's very moving about it, is that he would do this for some, you know, hippie guy that he knew kind of distantly.
0: I mean, one thing that I have noted in my life is that more often than not, the greats respond, you know, Mm. even to punks. You know, the greats have a duty, you know, they recognize a kind of duty and they mm-hmm. follow through and, you know, answer emails, they'll answer phone calls, they'll write back, they'll mm-hmm. respond. And they um, know
1: that uh, that people can be wildly inspired by them. You know, mm-hmm. that a little gesture by them will be remembered for the rest of the person's life like this. You know. And for yeah, beyond well, the person's life. Even.
0: Hmm. I had a, uh, I went to Key West when I was young in college, you know, for, uh, 10 days. Cause I had a car and it was Christmas mm. and, um, you know, just drove down there on my own and stayed at the last resort. Um, <laughs> you know, which was, had a couple rooms. It was really just a house and it's just a rooms and bathroom and shared bathroom. And I met a girl named Tracy Holiday. Oh, yeah. Her dad played jazz, and she was down there. She was visiting her sister, and we had like this little mini affair, wow. and it was like perfect. And she was from Plainview, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Long Plainview, Long Island. Yeah. Or no? Other... Yeah. Maybe there's lots of. Oh Plains. well, they're all the same in the empty Do uh, one up? size fits all. I'd
2: like to say that um, in, in in line with um, what Sparrow just shared from Allen Ginsberg, that um, I don't have it with me, unfortunately. If I did, I would read it. But when I graduated high school, a family friend gave me uh, a handwritten poem by John Burroughs, the American naturalist. Uh-huh. And the poem is entitled Walking. That was our first podcast. I should have mentioned it then, right? We, we mm-hmm. just, One of the early podcast was on well, Thoreau's essay, Walking.
0: Maybe this is our
2: last. <laughs> the last resort. <laughs> but I always wondered if, hey, if I needed money, could I sell this? Mm. I, this. But I, w- I won't do that, of course. But I remember feeling that it was significant to have. But I don't think John Burroughs is really remembered in the same way that Allen Ginsberg is, right? Mm. Do you know him? He's kind of famous in the Hudson Valley. I get the feeling. But uh, probably not widely known in the environmental movement outside of um, our region.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's room for a Burroughs annotated Burroughs, like a really tightly edited, um, you know, pithy couple hundred page like the best of Burroughs. There probably is, you know, and there's a possibility of doing a uh, resurrection on his because. I think he, he wrote well. And, and, you know, even from a regional standpoint, he wrote very specifically about the flora and fauna and living close to the ground and all those things that are particularly dear to us now.
1: Yeah. But he wrote lots of stuff. I mean, he didn't just because I read a, I wrote a review of some recent book of his literary essays a few years ago for Chronogram. And, uh, you know, he was in his time kind of like a Norman Mailer or something, like a public intellectual, a major figure. He,
2: he wrote this beautiful um, book called My Boyhood, which is a, a memoir of his childhood uh-huh. that I think is profound. And he, he concludes, I think, my memory serves correct, with the um, reflection of uh, as an older man um, or later middle age perhaps, um, finding his favorite boyhood teacher uh, on his mm-hmm. teacher's deathbed and saying thank you, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's a profound ending to a uh, remembrance of childhood. It's very
0: emotional. Mm-hmm.
1: I think he grew mm-hmm.
2: up somewhere around here in the Catskill. I think so,
1: right?
0: Yeah, yeah he lived around Rosendale, um, ah. and yeah, and also he had a place in uh, Rochester Hollow, out past Big Indian or around Big Indian.
1: Yeah, yeah, somewhere like that. Or maybe he's from there,
0: I
2: don't
1: remember. Yeah, I met his granddaughter, something like that. Daughter? Somebody Granddaughter, granddaughter? yeah.
2: His son was named Julian Burroughs and he wrote a memoir of his boyhood but it wasn't as profound
1: as <laughs> his <father. laughs> That's how it goes. Like William Burroughs' son uh, oh. who was hanging around the Naropa Institute when I was there in 1976. He wrote a book about cocaine. No, Speed, I think. His father was a junkie. Yeah.
2: Speed and Kentucky Ham. And they're two like novellas often published together. Speed and Kentucky Ham.
1: What's his name, Burroughs' son? William Burroughs Jr.
2: William Burroughs Jr. What was he like?
1: I remember him as a really, what my father would call a lost soul. I think he died not much longer after that, after 76. I mean, I should look it up. He seemed tragical, like a guy with an air of tragedy. He's the guy that, like William Burroughs, shot his mother in the head and killed her. You know, he's the son of that marriage, I believe, Mm. in Mexico City. You know, the mother Mm. put a uh, champagne glass, martini glass, maybe, Mm. on her head, and Burroughs tried to shoot it off. Like William Tell, missed and killed her, Uh, but he uh, was was, I think, uh, never went to jail for it. And this is the sun, you know, so it's it's not the best, what's the word, beginning of a lifetime, you know.
2: It's hard to work one's way out from that. Um, too bad he didn't have Sufi friends to... Sufi friends. Yeah, yeah. just meditate. Maybe he, maybe he does. Maybe there are Sufis out there who are working on um, repairing Billy Burroughs Jr.'s past. I don't know. You mean up there in the other world?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice thought and seems quite possible
2: to me. I taught a course once on the beats at Trinity School that was a disaster. Really? <laughs> My worst course ever because I thought I'd give short shrift to Howl, On the Road, Naked Lunch and do some lesser-known works from oh. some lesser-known beat-identified writers. And oh. there was nothing for the students to really grab onto. And yeah. it made me realize that um, just the beats weren't really speaking to that generation. When and, was this? Uh, Which generation were we talking Six years ago. I think that they were
1: horribly sexist.
2: Yeah, there was that and the appropriation of African-American culture and just... Um, They weren't really into the mythos of these guys and what they meant to one another. It just didn't register um, with them at all. I mean, maybe one or two students, but that was it. It was was hard because that was the stuff that I read that prompted me into a literary life. That was the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right, for a lot of us. And I remember being crestfallen. (laughs) Oh, really, that they couldn't share it. That is sad, I guess. I didn't really have a plan for the class either. I would have done a better job if I knew what I know now about teaching.
0: Yeah. But like your dream course. The dream course has been incredible. I, I, I don't know if the students are loving it as much as I do, but I think it's been great. Dreams are kind of a manuscript, you know, oftentimes yeah, it, in dreams, we're sort of working on uh, aspects, fragments of our day and uh, rehearsing mm-hmm. stuff and, uh, you know, preparing. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.